This is a Little Empire podcast. Visit us at littleempirepodcast.com and on Instagram at littleempirepodcasts. Don't be, so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Welcome to Polydex, an audio recording designed to chronicle the history of how America became an intellectual paradise in response to the dark ages of the 20-teens. My name is Tim Batt, and I'm a comedian and podcaster from the bottom of the earth, New Zealand. I'm joined by my trusty steed, Jeb. I haven't been uh, ridden hard or or put away wet. I've been uh, brushed and groomed. My stall has been mucked. Um, uh... But your voice is hoarse. My, so it still works. Exactly. But uh, I'm glad that, you know, you and I have this stable relationship. And uh, Nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've really got to hand it to you. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm running out of horse things. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're, really, you're having a mirror over there, aren't you? For sure. Um, it, ends, it ends right there. Uh, <laughs> we haven't spoken a little while, Jeb. We were trying to do uh, an episode last week, but it got a bit hard to coordinate because you have been experiencing in real life the visceral experience of American politics right now. Since we've last spoke, uh, the new president's in. Trump is, is now the president, and uh, no one's impeached him yet or shot him, so he's, he's there, which is great. A real testament to the peaceful transition of power and democracy working as, as it should. And what have you been doing in the last uh, the last week? Uh, well, so part of the reason why I wasn't able to uh, to to hop on a podcast with you is I, I went up to D.C. for the election and the Women's March, and then if if anything was burned down, I was going to be there to chronicle the smoldering ashes. Uh, and like a dope, I didn't bring headphones, and then went, the place I was staying had a really really wobbly Wi-Fi, so I don't think we would have been able to really record anything. Um, like I, I don't think I would have been able to hear you. Uh, but I. So I, were you at? Were you at the actual inauguration? I I did get a ticket. I mean, this is okay. So for like to put it into perspective for anybody kind of wondering if if the unpopularity of the inauguration really was as as significant as left wing media uh you know accurately portrayed it I, I was offered three different tickets to go stand at the capitol for the inauguration wow. from people i mean i was just running into to journalists i knew who who said hey do you do you have a ticket do you want one <laughs> and you know here just take it um it, instead what i wound up doing um I was sent to to a politico party they had a watch party on top of the willard hotel which has a, 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 a it's in it's a rooftop bar but with shelter and so I was there to kind of talk to all the people who clearly at one point or another because most people at one point or, or another expressed horror at the incoming Trump administration but who mm-hmm. the moment they could get free mimosas and bloody marys and canapes <laughs> and become part of the pageantry said oh yeah I'm I'm right on that uh, my disgust has abated as the, the the swamp is not being drained, and I'm happy to to get right into the fetid water yet again. Um, it it wound up being such a boring party that I did have in my pocket an invitation to go stand on uh, sort of the the southwest portion of the uh, uh, sort of the the, the capital grounds. Or it's kind of like when you you buy a ticket to a sporting event and you see like which section you're going to be in. And there was a standing section where uh, the bulk of journalists were put. 
and I was given one of those, and I was actually going to try to hoof it down there. Uh, and I, yeah. I just got kind of screwed by the DC police. Um, it, it, like th- this was, I thought, really telling. I, I had about a half an hour to get from this party at the Willard down to the Capitol, and I was able to sprint unimpeded down the streets. So I, I had my my little messenger bag, and I'm, I'm running. And there was there were so few people in front of me that I could just go flat out. And just for reference, how far away is the Willard from uh, the capital? I think it's maybe about 15 blocks. Uh, right. And I would have been, I really should have been able to make it in time. Instead, what happened was I stopped and asked police at certain gates, is there a way I can get through to the south side of the mall where I needed to be in order to get to my seats? And they said, well, you can't do mm. it here. You have to backtrack four blocks to cross. And then I backtracked and I got there. The, the cops there said, well, I don't know why they told you that. You need to go ahead 10 blocks. And, and so I wound up with, I think, about three minutes before he was set to take the oath and realized there's no way I'm going to make it. And instead, I followed a bunch of guys in MAGA hats um, cool. into a, a chop house and just watched them watch the uh, the inauguration uh, to just get out of And the- how was that... How was that experience going from the warm, tepid bath of a Politico uh, watch party into mega HQ? Pretty much as you expected. Um, they were, I mean, I didn't get... Did you talk to them? I, I talked to, I went I went up to a couple and just sort of said like, hey, why are you here? Why are you not at the mall? And, the, and I got the, why are you asking? And I said, well, I'm, I'm here reporting on it for Slate and... I got the oh I don't Uh-oh. want to talk to you you know your media yeah I didn't get I didn't get called Lugan Pressa or lying media but I, I very much got the as close to civilly told to fuck off as possible and so I just sort of sat you know about like four or five tables behind and ate and a different Reuben sandwich and and watched them clap at all. It sounds like it sounds like an appropriately sad and lonely way to absorb the events of what was happening. But I did have my 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 chair uh, and table were close to a power outlet, so I could charge my phone, which I, I realize doesn't seem like much to most people. But is it, it, on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of journalism, um, you know, uh, being published in print is number one. Uh, you know, probably and or like actually at this point in journalism, probably just having a regular gig is number one, and then you know, number two is is occasionally being in print at all, and and. You know, number three is being online at all, and number four is always being able to charge your phone. Uh, Get a battery pack for the love of God, Jeb. But what, I, I so had did one. you watch the en- <laughs> okay? Do you watch the entirety of the speech? Then, if you sort of got to that bar in time, what what did you make of it? Because I've kind of got some thoughts on when I was watching that. I watched it the morning after. Ironically, during the inauguration and the women's march, I was at a um, bachelor party, which was kind of. <laughs> Kind of the opposite in a lot of ways. <laughs> but what did you make of the inauguration speech that Trump gave? Wait, wait, why, why was it the opposite? Was it because people were having a good time or? I was hanging out with a bunch of dudes, uh, whereas I probably, all things being even, should have been joining my girlfriend at a women's march uh, that was in Auckland. But I was out of town with a bunch of dudes, sinking beers and uh, engaging in very laddish behavior for a man who was about to get hitched. Well, I, not, not to duck your question, but how was the... The, the New Zealand, how were the women's marches there? Were they pretty robust? And I mean, that I'm always impressed and, and delighted when 
you know, I see countries that are not the United States taking having yeah. average citizens take an active interest in at least pointing out that the United States is fucking itself. Well, this is the bit where I get to wave the banner for New Zealand and remind everyone that we were the first country in the world to give women the vote. And so that's kind of like a real point of pride for us. And the turnouts were really good. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was in the four digits, I think, both in Wellington and in Auckland. Um, There were a lot of good speakers, I know, at the Auckland one in particular. A lot of sort of New Zealand celebs who were there. Uh, We're a pretty liberal bunch, so it was a a good opportunity for, I think, a lot of people who were like-minded to come together and um, share in their misery and try and look to the future and bandy together some ideas of what we can do in New Zealand to kind of fight back as much as we can. Um, it, yeah, but from everything I saw, it was it was pretty significant here. And we even got a mention from Face the Nation's John Dickerson when he was rattling off all the other countries in a mark of, like, even little New Zealand had its marches. It's like, yes! Say it again, John. Say our name. <laughs> we get a, a collective heart on when we have uh, current events people with that kind of stature mention us uh, out loud <laughs> in America. So it was good. So yeah, they were significant. They were significant. But back to the original question, Jeb. What did you What did you make of um, of President Trump's first speech to the world? I you know I don't think I can say anything that I, I think a lot of people haven't already said. I mean, just the the imagery, the 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 ominous kind of dystopia that he invoked when speaking about uh, you know the United States and talking about the, you know carnage and mm. um, uh, the Washington Post. I I really should have it here to look at, uh, but they they had a list of all the words that appeared in his speech that have never appeared in an inaugural address ever. And all of them were kind of, um, you know, the, the sorts of things that, you know, the sorts of things that, that kind of crooked uh, realtors would, would include in a brochure to encourage you not to live in a neighborhood that was otherwise fine, but that might have a handful of minorities in it. And instead, to try to induce you to move to a, an even, you know, a suburb even further outside the ring of the city. That's more expensive because at least there your children will be safe. It's very interesting, eh? Because I, when, while I was watching it when it started off, I kind of thought, "Oh, this this is okay. This is not quite as conciliatory and uniting as the, um, the acceptance speech he gave when when he was victorious and uh, mentioned that he had just got the call from Hillary Clinton on the on November eighth. But I th- I thought it started off kind of okay. And then when he started painting this picture of these drug-addicted, burning-down cities that were riddled with crime to kind of... Cre- it was very evocative language, and you're you're right about the realtor thing, and I wonder if that's to do with his time and property. And I, I guess the main question is, what is the purpose of evoking that kind of imagery in his first big message to America as the president? Like, what is he trying to achieve by painting that picture of the country as his his first uh, his first stake in the ground as president, well, I, I think it's a two part thing. Um, and you're right. I mean, it, part of it might be informed by his experience uh, with racist uh, 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 housing policy in the past of, of just assuming that the presence of non-white people is inherently terrifying to good Americans who are all themselves white people, but. Um, I think the first part, I mean, the first main component is just 
you know, again, uh, reconfirming and, and uh, you know, the big lie that the Obama administration created this American dystopia because, you know, if, if he can, I mean, and, and there, there are multiple purposes behind that. Uh, one, you know, just sort of staying on message. Two, the more hellish and nightmarish he can make the Obama years, the lower a bar he has to clear to appear to have done anything. Um, so even if, you know, in terms of policy or, or positive outcomes for average Americans, if he can convince them that no part of their life was safe, satisfying, or mm. uh, beneficial in any way under Obama, then even the smallest gesture from him to roll back some of the perception of this nightmare confirms his efficacy as a leader, um, then I think the second part is is of a piece with uh, really the most telling line from his acceptance speech from the Republican National Convention when he said, I am your voice. And he said, yeah. I am the one who can fix things. And that kind of... the the cult of the the leader i mean that 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 fuhrerish idea that only a strong man such as 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 me donald j trump is capable of rolling back this nightmarish tide that was brought to you by a minority and a congress that didn't know what the stakes are so in in his mind you know it, it it's a dual process one reconfirm the horror and then two reconfirm that he is the only person with the aptitude um, and and ability to uh, to correct it, so there's like an incredible irony about that as well that he's trying to fashion the Obama years um, or the Obama presidency era ending in this kind of catastrophic circumstance of everyone who's in it at the moment. Because <laughs> I mean, Barack Obama inherited a presidency from Bush in a country that was engaged in two hot wars at their peak in the Middle East and the financial system was about to completely implode like right as he was being inaugurated and so genuinely like some of those descriptions uh, kind of in terms of scale would fit eight years ago in terms of the legacy that Obama inherited but it it doesn't seem to fit now and for those who were kind of looking for um for the racism in the speech that Jeb's talking about, the kind of coded language things that you want to look for are uh, the mention of gangs. Um, that's often like a, a synonym that gets used a lot. And I don't think he used it in the speech, but a, uh, one that Trump really seems to love a lot as well is uh, urban cities. He talks about urban city people, uh, which is kind of a, a coded way of saying black people. Yeah, I mean, at best, urban is is the quailing kind of copy editor way of saying, well, this is about black music or black concerns, but that's the positive one. And I don't think that there's really any connotation left in America for urban outside of that that is anything other than teeming black hordes of, of you know, uh, unrestricted uh, rape and plunder and, and, uh, and gun violence. And, and it's, it's telling yeah, that, I it's mean, very... I, I just want to say, like, you know, it's telling that yeah. he he's always wants to bring up Chicago, um, which is something that the right in general loves to bring up because Obama was from there and, and, and 
got his start politically there, so it evokes a crooked, you know, an entrenched democratic regime that, you know, allegedly does not care about the plight of, of blacks and does not care about urban violence because they've, uh, you know, their, their, their corruption has sort of cemented their stranglehold on, uh, on a municipality, but also it, it, it does a lot of heavy lifting about uh, the Second Amendment because, of course, Chicago has uh, very, very stringent uh, gun laws, and then the, the right is very quick to point out, yes, but they have a huge amount of gun violence. Well, you know, the quick response to that is the entire state surrounding Chicago and the, the, and the states surrounding Illinois do not have those gun laws. So, you know, it's sort of like saying, well, you're not allowed to bring a gun into my house, but my next-door neighbors are running two gun shows. Well, no shit, there's going to be guns in Chicago. Um, yeah, and so, you know, it's just a, it, it does a lot of really quick heavy lifting for uh, black terror, failed democratic policies, and the idea that, uh, also the, the, the very common idea that black people only vote for Democrats because Democrats will let them live in their own hell, but will give them handouts from the government. So we we had that speech which served all of those purposes to terrify the general American public and uh, rally the people who are already afraid of black people that voted Trump in. And then um, we had Sean Spicer, who is the new press secretary for Trump's White House, come out, I think it was the very next day on the 21st, and just proceed to make a bunch of shit up about how many people were at the inauguration and how many people uh, were watching at home uh, the TV numbers to be fair I think might have eclipsed 08 but the um, any sensible scientific measure that I've seen of people in attendance physically there um, it, there's just no content like it was factors larger um, when Obama was inaugurated both times um, in fact I, th- I, I saw something that I think NPR released which uh, they had a sort of scientist who specialises in this, a statistician um, who seemed to think it was about 140,000 people there on the ground and uh, from memory I, in 08 Obama had like more than 1.5 million he had, um, he had 1.8 million and then the next closest in history since we've been doing this kind of crowd count was Lyndon Johnson with 1.2 and and that was him being ushered in after the assassination of JFK. That that was like after, when he got his first actual term. Yeah, that was. Uh, so that's. I mean, that's kind of a special January, event. Yeah, January '65 when and he had uh, one of the largest electoral landslides against Goldwater. Then. So Sean Spicer came out and said that it was the largest uh, crowds of all time, um, and uh, scolded the press for suggesting anything else. And then, I'm not sure day of the week we're up to now, but basically then um, we flick forward to Sunday and Kellyanne Conway, who, uh, what's her official position now? She's counsel for President Trump, is that right? I, I, I'm, I'm at this point willing to just refer to her as the mouth of Sauron. <laughs> okay, well she's, she's in her um, second story tower in the White House, which we'll, we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on. Kellyanne Conway joins Chuck Todd on um, Face, uh, sorry, on Meet the Press, and uh, they get into quite a heated dialogue. And I, I'm not always the biggest fan of Chuck Todd. Um, I think he went pretty easy on Trump for all of his appearances that he had uh, late last year, but he really wasn't giving... 
Kellyanne Conway any wiggle room and kept um, asking this pointed question, which was, why did Sean Spicer go out there in his role as the mouthpiece of the White House, which is not only a function that serves messaging to the American people now, but to the world at large as the, the leader of the free world. And the first order of business that he wanted to tackle was a fabrication of statistics. The, the term he kept using was a falsehood about these numbers, which aren't even that important. It's not like the inauguration numbers are objectively that important. Like, who? it doesn't really affect any policy or politically, it's not going to reach into the future that much if not that many people were there. It's an easy thing to ignore. But instead of doing that, they lied about it. Kellyanne, who is one of the greatest professional communicators I've seen on TV in ages, say whatever else you will about it. She she can duck and dodge so skillfully. And she just refused to answer the question and then eventually got kind of backed into a corner and used this um, turn of phrase, uh, said that Sean Spicer and the team had alternative facts. And that has taken off online and there's been this whole conversation now because this is just in the immediate aftermath of the inauguration. Um, and it's, it's, this, it's actually a technique that Trump hid into and I think maybe accidentally, but maybe he's just a really skilled bully, where if you can come up with a term, a couple of words, or uh, like a mean name for someone, a mocking name, that feeds into an already existing stereotype that's there, it can just catch fire instantly. And so that was this whole bullshit about Crooked Hillary and Lying Ted, and everyone got a little nickname which just served to emphasize the stereotype that was around them. And with this alternative facts thing, it's this fantastic pre-packaged hashtag that she accidentally just said out loud on live television and uh it, it does seem to be coming to life before our very eyes like the fact that they they lied about the numbers um i know that there's uh, different departments particularly environmental departments which are being silenced at the moment um they've managed to get into a twitter war with one of the national parks which just started tweeting out basically scientific facts about how how much um, greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere in the post-industrial age and that's being shut down and it seems like there is this kind of war on truth at the moment is that being too hyperbolic and describing what the mood is at the moment no 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 i think you're absolutely correct um you know this this is something i've I've said elsewhere and i I haven't put down into you know a column or anything uh but you know that these lies about the attendance at, of the, the inauguration of the Women's March, they're naked, stupid, clumsy lies. And the, lie, the, the individual lie itself doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is the repetition. And I, you know, not, to, not to evoke you know, Goebbels and the big lie. If you, you make up something big enough and you just repeat it often mm. enough, it becomes true. Because I, you know, I, I hate how much repetition from... Uh, uh, from political activists, uh, you know, wanting to liken anything to the Nazis has cheapened the power of that analogy. But yeah, that, that, that's a really fair characterization of what's going on. The, the The individual lie itself doesn't matter. What matters is every single day going out and saying the press made this up. The tr- here is our truth, the real truth. Mm. The press has their alternative truth. If you introduce the concept of alternative facts, then 
what's that can apply to you negatively but it can also apply to your enemies and what then happens is we like you know heating up a frog on the stove in the water we slowly yeah. get acclimated to the idea that there is no longer a shared sense of history because as you know to have a responsible civics we have to start with the same baseline of facts that's the only way we can achieve consensus and compromise if we say there are these few things that are immutable and that we mm. have to negotiate from and negotiate with and if you just pull if you just rob our com- rob us of a common sense of history and a common understanding of what happened as things that actually happened then you have a great deal more latitude to commit evil when the stakes are higher and when you want to do some really dire and nasty shit that is way yeah. more important than worrying about crowds you will if you've if you've repeated this for months and months when you finally reach that point there are a lot of there are a lot of people who just passively may not have thought about it critically may not be avid news listeners or consumers who will just say like well, you know, we, we know that there are two stories about this now. And, I mean, sad to yeah. say, the news media has contributed to that enormously over the decades by, uh, I think Paul Krugman had a line about, um, you know, 99% of scientists will tell you that heliocentrism is real. However, others disagree. And, yeah. And you know, the, the, the news, by, by relying on this he said, she said thing that presumes the truth is always in the middle, has kind of primed the pump for this to work and then they're just they're taking it to the natural conclusion where literally anything can be can have two sides to the, the uh, to its story two plus two is four in one person's conception but it's perfectly valid to assume it's it's not in another and so like as much as we want to dunk on this stuff and mock it and go look how fucking stupid they are they know what yeah. they're doing and and this is you know this well, is a longer that's game actually that's a question I want to ask you because I'm not even sure if this matters necessarily because the end result is the same. But do you think that this is an intentional tactic that they're trying to beat down and almost engage in like psychological warfare with the public at large by presenting just bold-faced lies and it doesn't matter if you can prove them wrong. They'll just maintain the lie. Or do you think that this is just a sort of political ineptitude and a narcissism and a pathological bunch of liars that are, are, are just kind of being shown up or do you think this is a decision that someone has made and how they're going to conduct their politics I, I think it's a combination of the two I think for Trump I mean if you if you read the uh, there are some great longer accounts in the New York Times uh, I think uh, I think one of them came out on Sunday and I wish I could remember the, the name of the article um, talking about how you know he was seethingly mad on uh, yeah. all day Saturday at, at having uh, having sorry uh, the, the the size of his inauguration dwarfed by a woman's march so I think it starts with him being petty and thin-skinned and desperately desperately needing to be uh, uh, considered popular and adored and then you have a lot he's surrounded by people who are much more uh, strategic career opportunists so people like Steve Bannon who uh clearly who wrote that uh, he co-wrote that inaugural address mm. uh, you know they're they're bringing with them their agenda and tropes and then what they're using is is you know Trump's displeasure and his narcissism as 
uh, a means for advancing this idea that we we live in a, a post-truth uh, uh, universe. And 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 part of my conviction in that is that you know Trump didn't invent this, uh, and his people didn't invent this. Uh, uh, you know, Ron Ziegler, uh, the the press spokesman for Richard Nixon, started out by basically saying the Washington Post is fake news. They've, they've got this ax to grind. It's, it's, you know, an absolutely shameful and abysmal misuse of the craft of journalism. And and they ought to, uh, uh, you know, they, they should take a look at themselves and be ashamed. And then you had the same thing happen with the Reagan administration where they just, you know, you, you make up something and you, you run with it and you keep going. The Bush administration, the second Bush administration did that far more. And I think what they realized, um, or not quite realized, but but pioneered, and that the Trump team realized it far more successfully is that if you just keep lying about everything, there's only so much the the media has only so many resources to to counter that, and they're always going to be countering it hours or days later, at which point your narrative gets out first. It yeah you know it sticks in people's minds, and how many people are going to go back and read the correction uh, the. So, Which, funnily enough, this was, it, it, just to throw this into the mix as well, um, the Trump people kept uh, quoting uh, the story that was floated that the um, bust of Martin Luther King was removed, I think, from the Oval Office. That was uh, untrue, completely untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, it got moved, but it, it didn't get removed. And the journalist who um, mistakenly put that report out who I can't even remember who they wrote for, but it was someone big like Reuters or something, right? I don't remember his outlet, but I do know the it story. It was a pretty... Yeah, and so they, they took it back and um, issued sort of an an equivocal apology as soon as they possibly could to say, no, we messed this up. This was an incorrect account. Um, and it's uh, it's interesting f- <laughs> that they kind of... They grab at these little examples um, as though it's an equivalence mm-hmm. to be accused of like these these big bold-faced lies that are being delivered by the press secretary about stuff that's demonstrably true because we can see the satellite photography from one day and from another or just the camera that is inserted on uh, the Lincoln Memorial or something whatever is overlooking uh, the pavilion and to ha- to have that and then they kind of they see this little example that they're able to really reach for and throw in front of people and it's it's like you were saying before, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, this phenomenon of the news having to cover um, an opposing view, even if it's in the extreme minority, even in stuff like science. If there's someone else who's got a slightly different idea, not only does it serve certain journalistic principles that we decided to adopt at some point from memory when we were talking, you suggested it was a pretty strong thing in the 70s and 80s, but it also is pretty entertaining as well to hear an opposing view on something that's true. And it's just kind of like cracked the door ajar to this thing where now things are getting so tribal with people's political ideology that everyone's being provided with ammunition now from these tiny little minority examples of things that they can throw in other people's faces and it's i don't know how we kind of get out of that i'm not sure it's it seems like a really hard task to get back to current events objectivity and i think part of it is that we're living in such a complicated world now that you'll you'll always kind of be able to grab something that opposes the view, even if it's the real majority view. I don't know how we kind of fix that. Well, I mean that's that's an entire other podcast, I think. But 
just to kind of add to the the thing about the the MLK bust, that the the, the journalist who reported that not only took it back on his Twitter feed, I think he he posted that mea culpa and then reposted and reposted and was replying to people. So he had dozens of tweets acknowledging it. His publication Mm. acknowledged it. And then when Spicer addressed that issue in another press conference, he he brought it up and said, well, this is a case of, of their making up lies and then thinking they can get away with it and did not acknowledge that... If I remember correctly, and I mean, anybody is welcome to please tweet us and, and let me know if I'm mistaken about this. Uh, I've been I've been in, in D.C. with a fever and very little sleep uh, and, all, and also out like at all hours and not just sitting around reading and watching TV. Um, but if I remember correctly, Spicer did not acknowledge that 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 apology and correction had been issued. And then Fox News in reporting on it was tweeting out and putting on its Facebook page. Uh, and saying on on the air that you know this craven member of the liberal media would you know deliberately uh, you know engineered this lie and then did not account for it and so it was another opportunity to just add another layer of of lies of you know so the the, the apology and the mea culpa didn't happen this is more evidence mm. of the systemic dishonesty of the liberal media to attack uh, Republicans and the Trump administration in particular. It's so hard, too, because now journalists are going to be held up to a higher standard than ever before. And in a lot of ways, rightly so. They've got a lot of power, just like the White House does. So it should be held to a a high standard as well. But fuck me, man. It seems like your journalists have never been paid less. (laughs) So it's like everyone's walking on eggshells trying to find a compelling story that will get some clicks and absolutely maintain uh, journalistic integrity, make sure that the story is bulletproof. Um, and then if they do screw up, God damn, do they hear about it. Career over. I just, I'd like to speak directly to the audience here. Tim is absolutely right. Journalists have never been paid less. <laughs> let's, let's all remember this as a mantra. And, uh, and, and I'm not just saying that for me. I'm saying that for everyone from the, the, out of the sheer goodness of my heart. Uh, but if, if you don't mind, I think we should take a break. I'd like to hack uh, the remainder of my lungs out. Um, and then uh, I, I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the, uh, the Women's March and, and sort of where we go forward. Sounds good. In fact, every time I say I had an uncle who was a great professor at MIT for 35 years, who did a fantastic job in so many different ways academically. He was an academic genius. And then they say, there's Donald Trump, an intellectual. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. Welcome to part two of Politics, a podcast that asks the question, why do we give a shit about Kellyanne Conway's stand-up comedy chops? I'm an unqualified voice called Tim Batt, and I'm joined by political journalist Jeb Lund, who recently attended the DC Women's March because this is what a feminist sounds like. And now you talk, Jeb. Uh, uh, I'm a feminist with a very froggy voice. Uh, I spent a lot of time shouting. Um, uh, yesterday, the feminist sounded like a, a Tom Waits live album. So, <clears throat> but you earned that voice. You got it on the streets. We, you weren't waving banners though. You were observing the people waving banners. And um, tell me about the march. Tell me about the mood. But can you also just lead by telling me about the hats? Because I didn't know about the hats thing, and I just heard it referenced in a podcast um, this morning. And I, I didn't know about this hats thing that was happening in the women's march. 
Actually, I, I, don't, I don't know that, so tell me about that. Oh, okay. I don't know. Apparently, there was like thousands and thousands of these knitted hats, and there was a particular design that got distributed among the attendees, and they kind of looked like they had little cat ears on it. But you know what? Maybe they weren't as prolific as I've been led to believe. Oh, oh no. I think I know what you're talking about. The uh, Yeah, to, the, the cat's ears, to, to, uh, because there were a lot of signs of like, this pussy grabs back. Oh, that's what that was about. That makes yeah. sense. Right. I hadn't made that connection. Okay. So um, talk us through it. Where, where were you? What was the experience like? Well, I, it was it was night and day from the inauguration. So like I was saying earlier, I could sprint down the street unimpeded on the day of the inauguration. I, I took two Ubers on inauguration day um, uh, just because, you know, the, the metro was... I was afraid it was going to be just a, a nightmare. It it ha- it already has a lot of service outages, and I thought that maybe a lot of people from out of town were going to clog it up. But I, we were driving effortlessly across the city. My second one, only about two hours before Trump was to be sworn in, uh, we just went straight down 14th Street, and the guy let me out right at a police cordon, and then I just walked in uh, for the Women's March, they shut down uh, the, the, the metro stop at L'Enfant Plaza and, and also at uh, the archives. You know, so people were getting out, uh, you know, stops behind uh, where, where they wanted to. Uh, the, the, uh, the sidewalks were thronged. The streets were thronged. Um, uh, you know, it was really difficult to get any kind of momentum going uh, at all because as soon as you hit an intersection, you had, because of the absence of traffic lights, you would have people who were already going two ways on, on, you know, one street on one side and two ways on one street and another side and two ways in another street and et cetera. And then on, on the sidewalks kind of converging and then trying to, to turn. Um, I think at one point, uh, you know, it took me about 20 minutes just to get about a block down. Uh, you know, so like really anybody who would even try to, to, to sell you on the idea that there was a parody in the crowds is utterly full of shit. Uh, you know, this was at least double, probably triple. I think, yeah, I, like yeah. easily triple the, the, the attendance. And I mean, toward the end, as I was walking up the hill on 14th Street, and you could see this again on like 15th and, and uh, 16th, you could, you could look down the hill and, and literally see people thronging the streets to the edge of, of the, the, the limits of, 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 uh, of uh, your, your eyesight and also, you know, the distortion of, of the atmosphere of the, of the air, you know, it just, it was people, people, people. And then it just sort of fuzzed into lights and hats and shapes and colors. But, uh, you know, this, this was an, an unmistakably massive demonstration of, of humanity. Half a million people in DC apparently, and potentially 750,000 people in Los Angeles as well. Um, so, much this is this is a dangerous parallel to be uh, drawing but I'm going to do it anyway there is a generalized nature of the women's march which in some ways um, reminded me of occupy and the the like the wider occupy movement yes keep going okay <laughs> so I, guess, I don't know what the question is with this, but I guess the question is, as someone who was there and attended it, um, especially in the DC one, which was the original uh, organized main kind of nexus event, what was the intention of the Women's March? What are the goals that they seek to achieve? 
So just to build on your illusion, a a friend of mine, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on his name because I knew him by his Twitter handle, once wrote a thing on my blog, and and, and it wasn't the most original observation, but I loved his... uh, his articulation of it was the fundamental problem of Occupy Wall Street was that it never articulated a politics beyond the occupation of public spaces. And you could get that sense from the Women's March of, uh, you know, you know I, I, I made an attempt to interview some people and then eventually I realized, you know, that wasn't really going to produce a, a story that was going to be different enough from the, the hundreds that would be written. And instead, I, I just sort of hung back and and really enjoyed listening to people talk to each other and interact with each other. But, uh, you know, by the same token, I wasn't sure what the people there thought they were doing other than making right. a kind of show of force. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, there, there wasn't a sense, if you were there, of knowing what the first priority was and then what you do afterward. And, it, you know, it was very convivial, uh, you know, there, there was, I mean, real genuine exuberance and pleasure in being there. But the question I, I kept coming back to is, how do you take that enthusiasm and then apply it somewhere else? And what I, I had hoped... I think there are some really uh, concrete ways that that is being applied in all the little splint. I mean, it's unrealistic to expect this cohesive group that came together on the day to kind of go forward as one glob of people and demonstrators and protesters um, to, to carry out the action but it, it does feel like there's some real concrete strands that are kind of offshoots of this that are going to persist well I hope so I mean the the biggest one is you know look it's great if you can go to a major city and be with 500,000 people and be on TV and feel like you accomplished something but if yeah. there's one thing that we need to learn from the Tea Party and from uh, the huge Republican gains made during the Obama administration is that there might not be 500,000 people there and it might not feel like a party and you don't get the you won't get the cred of saying hey I was at Woodstock uh, yeah you're you're needed at home you know and you're you're needed someplace where it's not going to be reported on national news it might only get two minutes or one minute on your local news but you're going to have a more important impact if you're harassing or intimidating or frightening, you know, obviously not literally, but in, in terms of your, the, the potential of your political power, uh, if, if you're doing that for your local representatives, uh, because they're going to be much more receptive. It's, it's kind of a, similar to the symptom of, of, you know, after the election, people all donating to the ACLU. Well, that's great. The mm-hmm. ACLU has a really great fundraising arm already, and it's nice to be able to contribute to these large national causes and to think, well, maybe my money went to this really big lawsuit, but there, there's somebody right now who lives within five miles of you who needs you. And, uh, you know, this kind of plays into something. So I tweeted out something. I, I said, look, let, let nobody convince you that this was about rage or anger. You know, I heard maybe two crosswords despite walking. I walked about six miles around the mall over about five yeah, hours. Yeah, apparently... Apparently there were zero arrests worldwide. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the, the, it's crazy. There, there, it's unprecedented. The, the like the most violent exchange I heard what what turned out to be two sisters arguing with each other. And it was, you know, it was one was said like just started yelling like I can't fucking believe that you did that. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just it was like I can't remember her name, but like Carrie, you 
you, you always do that. You and, and then and then it came down to and you're like this with mom too, or something like that. And it was like oh okay, you know this is this is like a 15 year old argument. That, that this is what a feminist sounds like. <laughs> like, well, this is what a feminist sounds like with her sister, you know, like, yeah. or with somebody, somebody in her immediate family who was probably messing her up on her way out to soccer practice sometime. Or oh yeah, this or like, this is what we all sound like realistically. This is what a family yeah. sounds like. Um, but I mean that that conviviality and and that pleasantness that that exists. I mean, there there are two reasons for that. Uh, one was the sheer size of the crowd, uh, which uh, keeps. Uh, violent counter protesters at bay just the you know sheer numbers uh and also if you look at that crowd um it's an overwhelmingly white crowd and cops are generally less apt to go in and and violently interdict people who look like cops or people who look like cops families and and not to kind of boost the solidarity is for white women hashtag but uh you know there's a reason why uh, th- this protest didn't face a lot of violence uh, because it was a protest of, of people who, uh, you know, come from relatively affluent backgrounds or at least more comfortable backgrounds, for, I, I would think, for the most part, because they're traveling to the nation's mm-hmm. capital to take part in, in civic civil demonstrations. Um, and also they don't look like the sort of people that, uh, you know, law enforcement is used to being given carte blanche to stop. And so th- yeah. the, the thing I thought and the thing immediately after that was you know that's great but if we can take 500,000 of you and we can peel a thousand of you at a time off and take you to a thousand you know to 500 (laughs) different municipalities around the country when Black Lives Matter is going out or when uh, uh, you know uh, uh, CARE you know Islamic groups are going out or when immigrants rights groups are going out uh, you're going to do so much more for them uh, you know, if, if nothing else, then by making a phalanx around them. So when the cops want to come in with pepper spray and with, uh, you know, those telescoping nightsticks, the first group of people they have to go through are people who look like they belong to uh, the local upscale swim club or people who look yeah. like their sisters or their moms or their daughters. Um, y- you know, if, but if, I guess it's it, part of the strength of, I think, what resulted in these huge numbers for the Women's March was the opaque nature of what the politics was all about it wasn't super obvious what the exact causes were it was just a general idea that a huge amount of people are pretty unhappy that trump's in the white house and wanted to signify that somehow but when you do start um stratifying it into the 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 different lines of black lives matter or it could be um reproductive rights issues that you know that power is going to dissipate because some of the women won't agree with the different constituent parts that made up the kind of greater body of that march and i guess that's that's going to be the interesting thing to watch going forward it's like you say there's not going to be big obvious opportunities for everyone to do this sort of thing and feel good about themselves um unless we just keep creating them but yeah. i mean the inauguration's a pretty unique moment in time to be able to capture everyone's uh displeasure with what's happening but um i did i wanted to ask you one thing specifically jeb because we're uh running out of time a little bit now i'm gonna i'm gonna paint a little um visual metaphor for you and i'm not sure if it works we'll find out at the end but it feels like the things like the women's march and a lot of the attitude that's happening online is kind of this vehicle 
that's that's trying to go somewhere and there's all these little bits of fuel that are coming in and i think an important um one of the gas stations along the way are these leaked news stories that are coming out from inside the administration and the people that are in it. You mentioned a New York Times piece earlier, which made up one of, uh, there was either three or four different pieces that all came out within a couple of days of each other. Um, One was in the Washington Post. I think there was um, an original bit of writing uh, from Politico uh, as well, where they had sourced people on the inside. Um, A lot of them were anonymous and higher up. They didn't want to be... Um, quoted and named or sorry they want to be quoted but not named um, but they they were all painting the picture of this super fragile emperor with no clothes and I wonder if do you anticipate the level of leaks that sort of have come out over the last week about what's happening inside the White House are, are they all going to dry up soon do you think or do you think they're not um, astute enough to figure out how to plug those holes my guess is that they're going to continue. I mean, the, the sheer number that we've gotten over, like, what, four days is yeah. astonishing. And and I think it's indicative of a widespread lack of respect for the man that they're serving as president. Uh, you know, a lot of these, I think the leaks are going to continue to come from career people who understand how things are supposed to be done. Um, yeah. Who have a respect for competency and process. And... Because one of the, one of the things that that is you know is, is you were talking about in those articles that comes through in every one is the the the, the astonishment or disgust at how you know vituperative and vindictive he feels toward any indication that he is not as popular as he thinks he is. Yeah. Uh, so you know again like protests you know and and, and maintaining them and having even more are going to engender more of these sort of uh you know disruptive responses and i mean there's multiple ways that can go you could get disproportionate crackdowns and violence that are definitely going to hurt some people but also will fuel further backlash but in Mm. in the immediate sense these temper tantrums are going to fuel the lack of respect for his management of the office and i think are going to incentivize further leaking because those people who are in those positions who took them so that they can have that on a resume and then when this is all done parlay that into a great lobbying job and a speaking gig they they have powerful incentives to distance themselves from him so when uh you know when when we get whatever our equivalent of the nuremberg tribunal is for this even if you know nobody goes to jail uh you know even if it's just document dumps they can be the ones who say, look, all along, I was inside being the voice of reason. Uh, there is always that, that kind of craven opportunism at work. And do you think that that's going to be enough to drive people to keep kind of th- throwing these things out? Because it's pretty risky. It's a pretty ballsy move to be talking to the press, especially knowing how furious this guy gets about these kind of reports coming out about him. For someone who must be working under him at the moment, I mean, I, I can imagine there being some pretty dramatic consequences. Um, the, the you know the weaponization of the Espionage Act um, comes to mind as a recent example of a way that leakers have the the I guess the attitude towards leakers has hasn't really changed. 
the people who are in power hate people who leak information but the tools that they think are appropriate and they have made appropriate by the replication to try and punish them that's the thing that's changed and i trump just seems like such an extreme dude that i wonder what raising of the stakes will look like for people who are working in his administration and working in these kind of public sector roles these public servants if they do um be the voices of dissent i i, I feel like he's going really going to ratchet that up and threaten people um pretty heavily not to say that obama didn't engage in, in a bit of that with his administration as well well yeah, yeah not having the espionage act in front of me if you know if i remember correctly that pertains to national security issues and, and yeah, that's right. Supplying. So I mean that as a parallel rather than a um, yeah a, a, a direct line of attack, but more to just parallel that that was a norm that got changed, whereby people in the press who were leaking uh, like military information that was kind of a novel idea. I can't even remember who the first administration was that that started doing it, but it was of sort of the recent three or four um, that started using the Espionage Act to try basically journalists. And it's, it's just that reaching into the toolkit and looking at a particular piece of legislation or some other kind of measure that you can use and going, oh, maybe we could actually use this against leakers. Well, I, I think, so, you know, as long as these guys stay away from national security issues, if they're just talking about the conduct of the president and how he is managing his office, I think they're going to be in the clear. And then, you know, the other thing to remember is being the ex-Republican who decries Republicans is a really sweet gig. There is nothing that the mainstream press likes doing more than taking some amoral fuck who has a career of just immiserating thousands of people and and demonizing marginalized groups and then ha- what you know having him witnessing his one come to Jesus moment and saying, well, he's good now. Let's book him on everything. Um, uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, who is lovingly nicknamed genocide Ben for his attitude about the forced uh, expulsion of all Palestinians from, uh, from Israel and Palestine. uh, You know, the moment that he broke from Breitbart, which uh, by, by widespread, DC rumor was basically his trying to get out of a contract he hated uh, right. was was great because as soon as he did that he was no longer only booked on Fox News he was on CNN mm. all the damn time going well look you know here I'm a principled conservative now I like I, I ridicule gay people sexually active people women who think that their vaginas should be under their control alone um, yeah, I've, I've never had a nice thing to say about an Arab but hey, I finally said that Breitbart went too far, so I'm respectable now. So I think a lot of these guys are going to be fine. You know, it, betraying Donald Trump is a pretty sweet meal ticket. Yeah, well, cool. Then that's actually making me a bit more hopeful that these guys are going to jump ship. Like even Lindsey Graham seems to be um, sort of staking a claim on that early gold mine right now, seeing him pop up a lot. Well, yeah, and, 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 and his uh, his lifelong definitely heterosexual life partner john mccain uh you know he basically punched his ticket uh to being on you know like i I made a joke in a column once that like john mccain can like he could he could give 
uh, he'd give glassware and plates to a party of 40 people just by using things he took from the green rooms of Meet the Press and, uh, uh, you know, This Week with George Stephanopoulos. But, you know, his, yeah. his, he did thing, his, his Q rating for the longest time was, I'm the guy, I'm the maverick who's unafraid to say what's wrong about George W. Bush. And then he turned right into, you know, the aver- as soon as Barack Obama was elected, he went right back to being your average uh, opportunistic and uh, conservative invertebrate. I don't know. Maybe there's something admirable about a man who's willing to call everyone to account. Yeah, I, I like that. That really stopped around January 2009, though. But uh, but hopefully we'll we'll see some people who can who can stay principled longer than the uh, the Trump administration. Here's hoping. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Politics. We will be back before you even know it. We'll be back so quick. You won't even. No one's going to lose their voice. It's going to be a great thing. Uh, please follow us on Facebook. Jeb, yes. Uh, no, I was just saying. You know, it's it, it's going to be the fastest turnaround you've ever seen. It's so efficient. Uh, you know, everyone loves it. We've got the best listeners, folks, don't we? Yeah. Uh, really, really great show. Really terrific show. Beautiful Tremendous. people. Lovely people. I mean, just the best and a, people. And the best the best Facebook page, uh, which <laughs> we will stop neglecting as well. Um, find us on Facebook. It's politics. It's spelled the same way as, as the podcast. And Jeb, how do people find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Mobute, M-O-B-U-T-E. I am at Tim underscore Bat, and if you want to follow Jeb's writing as well, because uh, guess what? Your boy's not as unemployed as he used to be. Uh, <laughs> Jeb Lund's Word Salad is what you want to look for on Facebook as well. Thanks very much for staying tuned. We will catch you in about a week, and stay safe out there, everyone. Bye-bye. And the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now.